The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. And then when the American public tried to kind of engage after the fact with a coming to terms with an adjudication of what had gone wrong with the policy, there is no meaningful way to do so because members of the CIA are able to classify a lot of the information. Uh, they kind of are then can wage a kind of war of public relations, selectively disclosing particular stories about why it was or wasn't effective. And people who try to publish information that without approval face Espionage Act charges. So, you know, to me, I agree that there will probably be deep debates, maybe irreconcilable about what the American public is willing to stomach in terms of a national security policy. But the secrecy regime means you don't even get that debate in the first instance. The game is kind of already set by those who control information at the source. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for December 29th, 2023. Former President Trump's prosecution for mishandling classified documents at his Mar-a-Lago estate has brought an old law back to the front pages, the Espionage Act. Enacted more than a century ago, parts of that law allowing for the prosecution of those who mishandle or unduly disclose sensitive national security information have helped provide the legal infrastructure for the modern classification system used to protect our country's most important secrets, and by some accounts to limit debate over some of its most controversial policies. In his new book, State of Silence, George Mason University history professor Sam Lebovic provides a fast-paced and eminently readable account of the Espionage Act, from its early 20th century origins through the various twists and turns that have led it to be applied to government leakers and former presidents alike. We sat down to discuss the unlikely evolution of the Espionage Act, the role it has come to play in our national security system, and how it might be changed to better reflect our democratic values. It's the Lawfare Podcast for December 29th. Sam Lebovic on the Espionage Act's unlikely history. So, Sam, you in this book tackle a pretty notable topic that I think a lot of people who listen to the Lawfare podcast or read Lawfare will be familiar with, and that's the Espionage Act. But you tackle it in its broad historical scope, which I think is really the only way to understand the Espionage Act, because it is not a law that has ever been enacted in the usual conventional sense, at least to reach its its current meaning. It's It's kind of grown organically or perhaps somewhat inorganically at times over the century of its existence or century plus at this point. Before we get into the substance of it, I would just be kind of curious, what led you to this project? You are somebody who's done art history in the past. You've written about speech and journalism. You know, This strikes me as a little bit of an interesting direction for you to take a step in. What led you to this particular focus about so, such a, a topic that for us national security practitioners and practitioner adjacents here at Lawfare, it always struck us as a much more kind of hard national security topic? Sure. So I first got interested in the subject in a book I wrote on the history of press freedom, uh, which was published in 2016, but that was my dissertation. So that had a sort of long gestation period. Uh, and when I first began that book, I was really interested in the kind of crisis of the news media industry in sort of 2007, 2008. Um, but as I was wrapping that up, it was 2010, 2011, as I was switching from writing the dissertation to thinking about revisions to the book, uh, to turn it into a book. And, you know, that was the era of the WikiLeaks disclosures and the Snowden disclosures. And so the question of sort of secrecy and public information, which was very much related thematically to the work I've been doing about the public's right to know and how the right to a free press did and didn't help produce a more democratic dialogue, 
struck me as directly analogous to these debates that were being had about you know whistleblowers and the war on leakers and the politics of secrecy. So that press freedom book ended up with a kind of second act really focused on the rise of state secrecy and how ideas about press freedom were not updated to account for the rise of secrecy in the security state in the 20th century. And I thought that was kind of where the, that work would finish. But I teach in sort of the history of foreign relations at George Mason University. I was invited to give papers at various places, including a working group uh, on national security whistleblowing that was put together. And that made me realize that there was just a lot more about the history of the Espionage Act that I didn't understand, that we didn't really have a good account of. And so working on trying to flesh out the rest of the story about where this secrecy regime came from that I'd picked up in the history of press freedom became its own object. And, you know, from there it grew. I just realized it was a terrific story. Um, you know, an editor actually reached out to me based on some work I'd done to see if I'd be interested in developing it as a book. Um, and then it turned into the book that came out this year. So to dig into the historical narrative of the book a bit, I, I think it's useful to start with kind of the the status quo anti-espionage uh, act, that the state that existed before it came about. Because a little over 100 years ago, before the act came around, the idea of a, of a state secret of kind of protected government information wasn't an alien idea. It was there, but it had a slightly different contour and context. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that fed into or, or contextualized the enactment of what was the Espionage Act in its original incarnation? Sure. So the, the key sections of the Espionage Act that we today mean when we talk about the Espionage Act, uh, Section 793 and Section 794, those actually come into the Espionage Act really with, as revised versions of sections from uh, a Defense Secrets Act from 1911, so six years earlier. And so from my point of view as a historian, it's kind of interesting that you don't have a Defense Secrets Act in the US until 1911, and then you get one passed in 1911 with no congressional debate. It's kind of passed in a panic. And then six years later, it's updated and added to again in the Espionage Act. So the question was, you know, 150 years of American history and up until that point and no secrecy law and then two in quick succession. So, so what's going on there? Until that time, it turns out, there was a law against spying, uh, but it's all involved in the laws of war. So it's during a time of war, if someone spies for an enemy side, then the laws of war provide punishment. What's new is the idea that you would need a kind of permanent peacetime secrecy regime, uh, a permanent statute that would always kind of govern the nation's secrets. And that slowly comes into focus in the late 19th century with really administrative regulations coming out of the army uh, and the navy that begin to regulate whether or not you can take photographs of forts and defense defenses on the coasts and so forth. And that ratchets up until you get to 1911, you get this first law. Uh, but I read in the book, I read that kind of slow ratcheting up process, uh, really as a function of a kind of broader moral panic about spying and security information in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, which is an era of imperial expansion and inter-imperial conflict. And I really think it's the anxieties that come out of that kind of era of imperial geopolitics that leads to a new worry about keeping information secure and then a new set of both sort of bureaucratic but ultimately legal techniques to do so. So talk to me about this relationship you see between these imperial concerns and the need for more permanent state secrecy apparatus. Is it about interstate competition, the idea of the United States simply its encounters with other states or other actors becomes much more significant? Is it about the nature of national security need? I'm kind of curious to see how you see one leading to the other. Yeah. So, I mean, the ostensible reason given by the advocates of new secrecy laws is that really it's a late 19th century version of globalization and kind of time-space compression. And they say, well, look, now you've got you know, fancy new modes of communication and transportation and spies can take photographs and then get in a car and jump on a steamship or they can wirelessly communicate information across borders. And that in this kind of worrying new era of an interconnected world, uh, you need to control information much more closely at the source. I mean, I think there's something to those technological claims, but behind them is a notion that there's a real zero-sum struggle between different empires uh, to sort of maintain and control supremacy. 
and that that registers at the level of really a series of moral panics, I think, in the polities of the various imperial metropoles. So, you know, this is the era famously of the Dreyfus Affair uh, in France, in England. There's the rise of the modern spy novel, which helps produce a kind of fear of German spies sort of infiltrating. Uh, at first, these genre fiction really, really focuses in England on the fear of sort of French spies infiltrating the nation, but then the French and the British sign a treaty. And so the, the fears all follow the geopolitical trajectory and begin to focus on the worry about the Germans. And in the United States context, it's really mostly in the late 19th and early 20th century, a fear of Japanese spies that's being promulgated. Uh, and it's being promulgated particularly on the West Coast, uh, but then also in Hawaii and the Philippines after those are occupied. And it's being pushed by both kind of individual politicians who have a sort of imperial security, geopolitical supremacy vision of what America should be, uh, but also by sensationalist newspapers. And there's kind of feedback loops that kick in here. But the context that matters to me is that, you know, what's being protected here when we say national security, it's not really national security, it's really imperial security in all instances. And that it's a very uneven hierarchical world. Uh, and there's a sense here that the key advocates of these early secrecy laws and the early security bureaucracies are really trying to maintain a very unequal world order where they know that they sort of are nested at the very top. And I think that produces anxieties that then lead to an effort to kind of control and suppress uh, potential pushback, uh, which could take the form either of a foreign imperial rival or could take the form of decolonization movements. Um, and these fears kind of intermingle in the early 20th century. One of my favorite examples uh, is there's actually during World War One around the time the Espionage Act is passed, there are a series of Indian uh, nationalist activists on the west coast of the United States who are trying to work with German foreign agents to get guns uh, to run back to India to use to fight against the British as sort of to try to create a national independence revolution. And, you know, the Germans are happy to help sort of explore this opportunity to weaken their rival during World War One. But then the US and the, the British security services actually work together to arrest uh, these Indian activists. It's called at the time the Hindu conspiracy trial, although the majority of the participants are actually Sikh, not Hindu, uh, who are who are jailed in the United States for espionage violations. So that brings us to the arrival of the Espionage Act which I think most of us who studied during this period, and particularly in the period leading into World War I, are familiar with it in the context of suppressing civil liberties, suppressing criticism. Talk to us about the contours and context for the original Espionage Act as it was enacted into law, how it was used, and what the reaction it triggered in various parts of society where it ended up being applied. You know, the Espionage Act, when it's passed in 1917, is partly about a fear of spies, uh, but it's actually an omnibus sort of national defense uh, law. And one of the clauses, and the one that will be the most important during the First World War, is a clause that makes it illegal to interfere with the draft and interfere with the prosecution of the war. And under the sort of prevailing attitudes to free speech at the time, the government prosecutes individuals who criticize the war some German groups, but particularly socialist groups and pacifist groups who are arguing that the war is unjust or the US should not be involved in World War I, they're all prosecuted on the logic that if you criticize the war, it makes it less likely, for instance, that drafted soldiers will turn up when drafted. And because that will interfere with the draft, it's therefore undermining the war effort. No different, they argue, than if you were to, say, blow up the railroad line that was trying to transport soldiers to embarkation points to go to the front. Now, to, the result of that is that about 2,000 Americans are prosecuted uh, for speech crimes, for criticizing the war, for really often mild types of criticism, for saying things like, this is a rich person's war and I'm for the people, not for the rich man, or the US involvement is unjust, uh, and so forth. And you know they're sentenced to up to 10 years in jail. Uh, and to us, that might seem to make a mockery of the First Amendment, right? the idea that you have a right to free speech in the United States. But the way that the First Amendment was understood at the time was that you only had the right to kind of speak, but you didn't have the right to abuse your rights to free speech, right? So you couldn't be censored before speaking, 
that if you spoke in a way that harmed the public good, well, then you could be punished for abusing your rights to free speech, just like you could be punished for abusing any other types of liberties. And under that prevailing logic, the Espionage Act becomes really a very effective censorship tool used particularly to punish the left and civil liberties groups uh, during 1917-1918. At the end of World War I, a bunch of the cases that had come out of that wartime censorship begin to work their way through the courts and a series actually arrive at the Supreme Court uh, in the spring of 1918. Uh, the most Important of them was probably the, the case of Eugene Debs, the perennial socialist presidential candidate who'd been sentenced to jail for a, really a, a sort of run-of-the-mill socialist stump speech in which he criticised the censorship of other socialists, actually. And he tries to argue to the Supreme Court that he should not have been punished under the Espionage Act, that this censorship is in fact a violation of his rights to free speech. And the, a unanimous Supreme Court says, get out of town. Like, don't, There's no right to this kind of free speech. Um, and this is actually Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., the famous Supreme Court justice, writes the opinion, and he says that what you're, you know, what you're doing is basically like shouting, uh, falsely shouting fire in a crowded theatre. You know that analogy we all know is a kind of funny analogy because what it really means is that there's no legitimate interest in thinking that there might be a fire in American society, that there might be any social benefit uh, from pointing out a criticism of the war. So in the spring of 1919, there's a sequence of unanimous Supreme Court decisions that rule that you don't have the rights to these kind of, this kind of speech, that it's totally appropriate to use the Espionage Act to censor critics of the war. And then a small group of left-leaning civil libertarians uh, who've been involved in pacifism during the war and who are arguing that actually democracy requires the rights to criticise government policy like, an, uh, like a war, really mount a pressure campaign uh, on Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. in particular, uh, the Supreme Court judge who had written the Debs decision and the Schenck decision in the spring of 1919. And in the fall of 1919, when he hears and the Supreme Court hear another Espionage Act case, this one involving a group of anarchists from New York who called for a general strike to protest American involvement in the Russian Civil War, the majority of the justices apply those springtime precedents to say you have no rights to free speech. In this instance, the Espionage Act allows the censorship of that kind of anti-American speech, they say. Um, but two judges, Holmes and Brandeis, dissent and argue that actually, no, you do have the right to that kind of speech in the United States. Uh, and this is where Oliver Wendell Holmes begins talking about the free trade in ideas and the free marketplace of ideas. And that's really the birth of the modern jurisprudence of the First Amendment, which come out of these clashes over the censorship provisions of the Espionage Act during World War I. So while this debate is happening, and then a good, a good ways after it, the United States is engaged in not one, but two major armed conflicts, the two world wars, um, and a substantial important period in between as well during which it is wrestling with a variety of national security challenges. And you, in your book, get into the evolution and the ways that these experiences begin to shape how we think about secrecy and engage with the secrecy provisions of the Espionage Act, the parts that were maybe a little less directly relevant in the earliest days. Talk to us about that engagement, the evolution we see in the first kind of two major armed conflicts through which this law lives. Yeah, so... The basic problem with the Espionage Act as a piece of legislation to, to regulate secrecy is that particularly Section 793 has a sequence of laws that prevent you from doing certain things with what it calls information relating to the national defense. So you can't retain it without authorization, you can't give it to someone without authorization who isn't authorized to see it, and so forth. But the problem with the law is that the 1917 law never defines what information relating to the national defense is or what a process might be to give someone authority to look at it. And the reason for that is that early drafts of the law prepared by the Wilson administration were going to give those authorities to the presidency. But Congress removed those sections because it didn't want to give the president that much power over the circulation of information in the American polity. And so what you have in the decades after 1917, then, is a kind of gaping hole in the center of the law where you've got a law that says you can't do certain things with information relating to national defense, uh, but nobody's really sure what information relating to the national defense is as a legal category. Uh, and that's not really tested in World War I, and it's not really tested in the 1920s. But in the 1930s, you begin to get 
uh, some cases that come up concerning those clauses and what their meaning might be. And you begin to get a series of improvisations. So some new laws are passed, which try to cover pieces of information that Congress is concerned might not fall within information relating to national defense, but should be kept secret. Um, There's one passed in 1933 to cover code, uh, diplomatic code, uh, because there's a Herbert Yardley, who runs a kind of proto version of the National Security Agency, publishes a memoir detailing what he'd done in the 1920s. And no one really thinks the Espionage Act would be useful to prosecute him. So they pass a new statute to patch it. And these kind of patches and experimentations with the law continue. They're fairly effective in the late 1930s at prosecuting Nazi spies in the United States. Uh, There's a kind of fairly lackluster Nazi spying effort that, that you know, tries to gather information about U.S. industrial capacity, but really can't gather all that much and is then pretty quickly rounded up by the FBI. And there's a big uh, spy trial in 1941. Uh, But one of the men caught in that, from that spy ring is an automobile executive by the name of Edmund Carl Hine. And he actually appeals his conviction under the Espionage Act on the grounds that uh, he says, it's true that I gathered information for, he was giving it to Volkswagen, which was connected to the Nazi uh, war machine. He says, it's true that I gathered that information for a foreign power, but he's like, that can't be espionage under the terms of the Espionage Act, because I never gathered anything secret. I just gathered publicly available information. I read newspapers and I talked to people at air shows and I, I wrote to public, public relations firms for aircraft uh, industrial uh, companies and got information about what they were making. And he's actually in 1945 let out. He's, he successfully appeals his conviction for espionage on the grounds that what he had gathered was probably information relating to the national defense. But uh, Justice Learned Hand says we can't use the Espionage Act to apply to anything that's information relating to the national defense because that in a total war like World War II covers almost everything. And so if we were to apply this law literally, well, we would have all sorts of public discussion about foreign relations and national security would become illegal, would become a form of espionage. And he says what we probably need to do is really focus on whether or not the information is secret. And actually, the Justice Department appeals Hines uh, when Hand lets Hine out. The Justice Department appeals, arguing that if this decision stands, well, then we're going to have no choice but to massively increase the amount of information that we keep secret. Because if you're going to interpret information relating to the national defense under the Espionage Act to require some kind of bureaucratic process for secrecy, well, then that's what we'll go ahead and do. And during World War II, as part of the bureaucratic experimentation that came out of the holes in the Espionage Act, there are new systems of classification beginning to emerge, and those will really escalate uh, in the early Cold War. Let's dig into that, because I think that's a big part of the story that a lot of people who deal, even who live in, with and deal with classified information not may not fully understand, which is that we have a system for classified information in this country. We have since 1951 that you know has the fairly familiar levels to a lot of people, at least around Washington, D.C., of sensitive information, classified, secret, top secret, then sensitive, compartmentalized information, lots of different codes and categories and things that kind of segregate that. Those are kind of the basic tiers of information. But a lot of people don't realize the Espionage Act predated this system by several decades and yet comes to interact with it very intimately, even though, of course, the Espionage Act being a product of Congress and this classification system being entirely a product, except in, in as you noted, in certain areas like around nu- certain nuclear information, things like that, entirely a product of executive order. Talk to us about how these two systems come to interact once we see the executive branch say, okay, we are going to have a regimented system for identifying classified or sensitive government information through this classification system. How does that interact with the Espionage Act and perhaps change its trajectory a bit, change how it's used? Yeah, so it's actually one of the grand ironies, I think, of history in this area is that Woodrow Wilson's Congress had not wanted to grant the presidency the right to unilaterally declare what information was secret. And that leads to this period we've been talking about where there's a kind of improvisation and a scrambling to make sense of what the Espionage Act might mean. Um, And in some areas like the atomic energy area, for instance, you know, the concern that atomic energy might not be information relating to the national defense 
is actually what leads to the Atomic Energy Act being passed. You know, some of the first proposals there are to amend the Espionage Act to make clear that atomic energy would fall within the meaning of information relating to the national defense. And then the drafters of that bill decide amending the Espionage Act is going to be too hard. We'll just come up with a new law, the Atomic Energy Act, which will govern all information related to atomic energy. And so you're having these various patches and plugins to clarify what the Espionage Act prohibitions on disclosure actually cover and actually mean. The most important one of those plugins is then the 1951 executive order that Harry Truman issues, uh, Executive Order 10290, which outlines a standardized permanent peacetime classification system that sets up, as you said, the, le the levels of classification that we're familiar with today. And what's important about that is that in the executive order, it says anytime this information circulates outside the government, it needs to bear a stamp that makes clear that disclosing this information would mean you are violating the Espionage Act because you are circulating information relating to the national defense. So that's a really kind of weird patched together legal situation. Uh, and the reason for it, I think, is that what the Truman administration is doing is giving itself the authority that anything it stamps as secret under the classification order will be covered by the criminal prohibitions of the Espionage Act. So once it's stamped, if you disclose it, you could be in violation of the Espionage Act. But they don't actually limit the Espionage Act only to information that's been classified because they sort of want to leave in place all those other patches that have already existed. So anything else that has previously been determined to be information relating to the national defense might uh, still fall under the Espionage Act, but anything that's classified will fall under the Espionage Act. And that's uh, important for two reasons. The first is that this is an entirely presidential system established by executive order, and so it varies from presidency to presidency. It's taking exactly the same sorts of powers that Wilson was denied by his Congress, and there's not really any complaint about it during uh, the 1950s, and we've lived with it ever since as if it's a perfectly natural thing for an executive branch to have so much power over information. And the second is slightly more subtle, but I think also significant, which is the Espionage Act says that it's illegal to disclose information relating to the national defense. The executive orders governing the classification system allow for the classification of any information whose disclosure might risk harm to the national security. And there's a difference between national defense and national security insofar as the advocates of a sort of ideology of national security or people who talk about national security in the 1930s and 1940s really understood that to be a quite expansive term that didn't just cover traditional war or traditional foreign relations, but reached down into sort of covering any part of society that might bear on national security in a kind of age of geopolitical confrontation and ideological cold war. And so the president has given himself the authority to stamp a secret anything that might be seen to harm national security if disclosed, which is a hugely expansive category, and then sort of retroactively plugged that back into this earlier law that was supposed to regulate the disclosure of information relating to national defense. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers, with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So this classification system really begins to intersect with what I think is one of the biggest scenarios you wrestle with. That's a recurring one, one very familiar to us today for the last several years, but has been, I think, high in the public mindset around classified information since at least the 1970s and 1960s, if not, if not before. And that is the relationship between the leaker and the media. This idea that individuals disclosing information begin to become targets of the Espionage Act today are some of the most common targets of the Espionage Act, at least until recently, until former presidents and other folks have, have gotten uh, a little more implicated by it. And that threats to the media begin to get pulled in here as well. Talk to us about how that trajectory, how that thread begins to break out of this formalization of a fairly broad and comprehensive and arguably broadening conception of 
sensitive information, classified information backed up by the Espionage Act and the threat of potential prosecution, among other sanctions. Sure. So again, the problems here really begin with a, a very poorly drafted law in 1917 that if you read it, it's not clear whether it covers the press or not. So one of the clauses says that it's illegal to communicate information related to the national defence to someone not authorised to receive it. And in theory, any time a newspaper were to publish a leaked classified document, they are communicating that information. So that makes it seem like the press would actually potentially run afoul of the Espionage Act any time they publish a leaked secret. Set against that, though, is the, is the fact that in 1917, there was another section of the law that was proposed that was going to give the president explicit authority to censor the press when they published secret information. And that was very controversial, and there was a huge amount of protest, and it was cut from the bill. It was actually the main thing that Congress debated, was whether or not the president should have the authority to censor the press. And I think this moment is really important because it establishes the dynamics that drive the development of the Espionage Act until the present, which is, you know, an administration that is very worried about leaked information that wants to keep uh, the nation secure, uh, whether that is, you think, legitimate uh, concerns about security or whether you think it's a kind of more cynical manipulation of, of the media in an effort to keep secrets to maintain its own image. In either case, that administration is going to be quite aggressive in trying to prevent any information from spilling out that it doesn't want to spill out. And repeatedly, it ha there have been efforts to use the Espionage Act to censor the press, to stop the press from publishing information that the government doesn't want published. And repeatedly, when an administration has tried to do that, there's been real pushback from civil liberties groups and also from the media industries, which have kind of real political clout, right? Because they control what information and sort of circulates in the public and the media coverage that are given to politicians. And repeatedly, those civil liberties and media groups have been very effective at preventing the government from prosecuting them under the Espionage Act. What they've been less concerned with, however, have been preventing the government from censoring its own employees from providing information to them in the first place. And this I read over the course of the Espionage Act as really a kind of detente that develops between an administration that says we need to prevent secrets from circulating in the interest of national security and a press that has said we need to be able to publish whatever information we can get because we need to have the right to decide what we print. Otherwise, we don't have a free press. We have too dictatorial a government. As those two big interest groups have clashed over the 20th century, the kind of piece that's caught in the middle is the government source. And I think you can see this pretty clearly when you think about the Pentagon Papers case, which is the most famous example of this dynamic in American history. You know, Daniel Ellsberg leaked uh, the Pentagon Papers, the inside history of the Vietnam War, to the New York Times and the Washington Post. The Nixon administration, in a rage, tried to use the Espionage Act to prevent newspapers from even publishing, to sort of censor them before publication. And the newspapers went to the Supreme Court and won an important First Amendment victory to say that the Espionage Act did not allow for prior restraint, did not allow for pre-publication censorship. That decision, though, said nothing about whether Ellsberg had broken the Espionage Act by providing the Pentagon Papers to the newspapers in the first instance. And Ellsberg himself never goes to jail for that, uh, but not because the courts find that he has a right to release information. He doesn't go to jail because the Nixon administration couldn't help itself uh, and established a small group in the White House to try to deal with its problem of leaks. And one of them says to a family member, like, I've got a new job for the White House. I, my job is to fix leaks. And she says, well, it's great to have a plumber in the family. And that's how the plumber's unit of Watergate fame is born. And the first thing that the plumbers do is break into Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office uh, to try to get dirt on him, to sort of smear him in the press. When that and some other uh, Nixon administration malpractice is revealed during the Watergate scandal, Ellsberg's case is thrown out of court. And so he himself goes free, but the law is pretty clear that he has violated the Espionage Act because he's provided secret information to the press without authorization. And the press, until really very recently, has never protested as seriously the the punishment of their sources as it has protested when it 
is threatened with censorship. And what we've got then is a very uneasy kind of detente where the press can publish secret information if they can get it and can't be prosecuted under the Espionage Act, although the law is actually unclear, but in practice, that's what's happened. Where the source has been offered up as a kind of sacrificial lamb, and in particularly the war on terror, the leakers of government information have found that they have no meaningful defense against an Espionage Act prosecution. So I, I think bringing the, the narrative, the historical narrative that you craft in your book so readably and so engagingly kind of up to the present day, I, I take your main criticisms with the status quo we've arrived at being kind of twofold or, or maybe threefold. On the one hand, you have broad overclassification. And then on the other hand, you have the broad potential application of of these criminal penalties that kind of layer on top of this with some ambiguity uncertainty between the two. And then the third angle is, regardless of the desirability of maybe the scoping of those other issues, those two other dynamics, there is a lack of a some sort of recognition for the need for a special rule or a special exception or carve out for publicly beneficial leaks of some sort to the what to the media for these sources of some sort you as you've described i think just now there is to some extent a little bit of that for newspapers now although we've seen that line get pushed a little bit with the wikileaks uh, indictments and julian assange indictments but nonetheless there's a, a line that protects media media outlets but the sources not so much that the whole conduit isn't there let me break off. I want to come back to that that second problem. Let me break off the first two to begin with. You know, what is the relationship you see between overclassification and these criminal penalties? What is it about them that combine that you see as, as you describe in the book, threatening democracy? What what, what is the inherent problem and relationship between the two? How, and how do they build and feed off of each other? Sure. So, I mean, the basic problem is that these two facts combined give an administration incredible tools to manage the flow of information in the American public and to therefore sculpt democratic debate about matters of national security and foreign relations policy. So when you have so much information classified, right? I mean, tens of millions of documents a year, four and a half million Americans need a security clearance to do their work, leaks are inevitable, right? I mean, that's just the way that so much foreign relations and national security reporting is done. In theory, every time that a, the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times publishes an article with some information relating to the national defense attributed to an anonymous source, which is all the time, that should be a violation of the Espionage Act as it's written. So we should be seeing Espionage Act prosecutions all of the time, and we never do. We only see Espionage Act prosecutions when someone is leaking information that's not in the interests of the government in power at the time. And so giving that much authority to a government really produces a series of harms, I think, to the quality of democratic debate about foreign policy. I mean, there's the obvious problems of the ability to kind of abuse uh, that grows behind the veil of secrecy, um, you know, a policies adopted that the majority of the public wouldn't necessarily approve of, and we can have a long list of those through American history, but the torture programs, warrantless wiretapping, you know, back to CIA adventurism and coups in the 1950s. But you also get the ability coming out of that for the advocates and architects of those programs to selectively leak information to try to build their own legitimacy and to build some support for what they're doing. Uh, you know, the textbook example here is, uh, you know, selective declassification and leaking of information about weapons of mass destruction in the lead up to the war in Iraq. But when someone comes along to sort of release information about malpractice that they think the public has a right to know, they can be met with very severe uh, penalties. So the debate that you might want to have uh, about whether or not, say, torture is a legal process, a justifiable program in the war on terror, or whether it's really an immoral practice that produces no benefits, that debate can't be had in a straightforward way because there's the administration with its control over information just has a lot of levers it can pull. So, you know, I, I find elements of this compelling, um, but parts of it, to me, kind of get down to just a general principal agent problem that's that's inherent in kind of any national security enterprise 
and always a point of tension between people who lean towards civil libertarianism and people who lean towards kind of conventional institutionalist views of of government, right? Where there's just a trust in government element. You know, it, it doesn't strike me that classification of interrogation programs, for example, is inherently overbroad, right? That would be the sort of thing that you could see at the core of even a fairly narrow and classification system kind of reasonably, if objectionably, if you don't like the policy. It, it strikes me as part of that criticism is much more about, do we trust people doing these sorts of underlying actions? Can you segregate these sorts of information decisions out from that question? I mean, is it really something that there is a there's an answer to based upon the classification system? Or is it just fundamentally about different assumptions of value and intent upon policymakers and different thresholds of trust. I have trouble, I guess, seeing, while I sympathize with the view that probably there's too much overclassification that might give too much uh, discretion on the margins in particular to the executive branch. Once you get to those more core issues of, of big national security policy and decisions, it strikes me as getting a little bit away from the classification system being a concern and more towards a fundamental different views about relationship between government and civil liberties and other values. You know, my take here is that a debate about something like torture is going to be a real political debate in which, you know, some American citizens may actually learn everything that was done and say, actually, for us, that's worth it. And we would like to vote for a government that, you know, does torture, while other citizens may say that's absolutely immoral and under no circumstances. And those might be irreconcilable positions. The problem is that debate doesn't happen and particularly hasn't happened during, didn't happen during the war on terror because of the role of secrecy in sort of blocking even a kind of first principles debate about what is appropriate uh, during wartime and what the American public may or may not support. So I think I disagree with your point that torture is the kind of thing that would fall within any meaningful classification system. Uh, you know, I follow here uh, William Leonard, who was the director of the Information Security Oversight Office who argued that the the classification of the torture memos was one of the greatest abuses of classification that he'd seen on the grounds that there's nothing harmful to national security about disclosing policy papers, right? I mean, this was a, here's what we think the legal obligations are that the US has signed up to, and here's how the government is interpreting those legal obligations and what it is arguing it should be able to do. Now, if you wanted to keep operational details secret, Right, what the particular black sites were, who the particular suspects were, what actionable intelligence was coming out of that, if any, out of that torture. You know, there I can see an argument that any kind of secrecy regime would need to kind of keep some of those operational details secret. But the policy level debate, I actually don't see the national security grounds for keeping that information secret. And I think it actually harmed America's national security because it was a bad policy, right? I mean, it didn't produce good intelligence. And then when the American public tried to kind of engage after the fact with a coming to terms with an adjudication of what had gone wrong with the policy, there is no meaningful way to do so because members of the CIA are able to classify a lot of the information. Uh, they kind of are then can wage a kind of war of public relations, selectively disclosing particular stories about why it was or wasn't effective, and people who try to publish information that without approval face Espionage Act charges. So, you know, to me, I agree that there will probably be deep debates, maybe irreconcilable about what the American public is willing to stomach in terms of a national security policy. But the secrecy regime means you don't even get that debate in the first instance. The game is kind of already set by those who control information at the source. So I think that brings us to the other prong of your your kind of critique, which is the need for some sort of a public interest safe harbor or carve out or exception to whatever regime we have. The idea that there needs to be some ability to have disclosures where it's unlawful conduct, perhaps, or conduct that's inappropriate, or perhaps information that's improperly classified fits in that category. Describe for the listener a little bit about how you envision that potentially working and, and, and what kind of endemic problems that is actually addressing or might be able to address if something like that were implemented. Yeah. So the basic problem now is that if someone 
comes across something happening within the government that's secret that they believe the public has a legitimate right to know. The Espionage Act doesn't care about your motives. Uh, and if someone, if there is actually a sort of a policy of abuse that you can't go to the, directly to the public under the terms of the Espionage Act, the whistleblowing laws in the intelligence community are obviously weaker than the whistleblowing protections in other parts of the government and provide a mechanism only really to go to superiors and then ultimately to go to the, the uh, Congressional uh, Intelligence Oversight Committees. But there's no mechanism for the kind of situation that, say, Edward Snowden faced, where it wasn't that the warrantless wiretapping programs were a kind of moment of corruption or there was a policy that had been passed that was had gone off the rails or there was a simple and straightforward abuse being committed or that the intelligence oversight committees didn't know what the NSA was doing they'd been because they, they had been briefed as well what snowden was concerned about was that the american public had no real idea that the statutes in the area of surveillance were being interpreted to allow such a massive surveillance program and he wanted and believed that the public had a right to know that that's what was going on, even though they hadn't been informed about it. Uh, and you know, there was an important national debate about those programs that followed Snowden's disclosures. And then there were reforms passed in Congress and uh, by the Obama administration. Now, they weren't what you know, the most civil libertarian supporters of Snowden would have wanted. Uh, you know, surveillance continues, but that's fine. There was a democratic debate. Uh, where people tried to work out what do we think good policy in this area should be. But Snowden can't raise any of that as a defense against the Espionage Act charges that he faces, because the only thing that matters is that he disclosed information without authorization. And he came forward and admitted that. Like The minute he turned over the documents, he went public and said, here's what I'm doing and here's why I'm doing it. And so there have been many people who call for Snowden you know, to come home and face charges to quote-unquote man up. But the Espionage Act at present doesn't allow for any defense. He's kind of definitely going to be guilty of the crime. And that, I think, matters both because it means that it really discourages whistleblowers from coming forward when they see abuse because they don't have a meaningful uh, defense available to them. And so that suppresses any kind of safety valve to allow abusers to see the light of day. But secondly, it also prevents Americans from really engaging in a meaningful debate about the kinds of information that Snowden disclosed. The idea here would be that there would be, you know, people call, talk about it as a public interest defense. Uh, the legal scholar Jochai Benkler has a good model of it, I think, but you could imagine different versions, uh, where someone who discloses information that they believe is in the public interest would need to show this is why they had a reasonable belief that it was in a public interest. They would need to do whatever they could to minimize uh, unnecessary disclosures so that they were only disclosing those parts of the policy that were needed to kind of inform public debate. And here you can think about the fact that, you know, Daniel Ellsberg released 43 of the volumes of the Pentagon Papers, but kept back four relating sort of diplomatic negotiations. That would sort of meet that criteria. And the third would be that they would go to a journalist or someone who was, who was seeking to raise public awareness. They weren't just, say, providing secrets to a friend or kind of tipping off an acquaintance. And that kind of safety mechanism, I think, would help prevent the abuse of the secrecy laws by providing a useful safety valve. So you close your book in discussing some of these policy proposals and solutions, some of which you're drawing on some other legal literature and policy literature that other folks have developed over the years, like, like Professor Bankler you mentioned. But you note that you really see the system as one that needs to come up root and stem, I think is the phrase you use, kind of removed wholesale. And it strikes me as an odd point of tension with the narrative that you've articulated, which is one of this kind of organic development. Again, organic not as a as a value judgment, but as a <laughs> uh, description of the somewhat unpredictable ways uh, it has grown. But it's grown in response to, to some extent, government needs, to some extent, appeals to courts uh, that have been validated or invalidated in certain cases. And you know, in a common law system, we often see that as a virtue, this ability of the legal system to adapt from sometimes broad statutory mandates, sometimes elements of the common law inherited from British law or whatever other sources to respond to these new challenges. And that's kind of the story you tell. It's just perhaps one where it's 
it's uh, you know the the shrubs have grown too far, uh, the tree has, has has outgrown its pot and needs to be adjusted to its its actual current needs or, or the situation it's in currently. So, what drives you to to encourage kind of wholesale removal? And I guess fundamentally, in my mind, how realistic is it given this trajectory and given the existence of this current system? You know, what would you say to policymakers as an appropriate near-term response is—is there—is there—is it that this really does need to go and be reinvented from whole cloth, or is there space to prune and adjust that might be, you know, effectively implement some of these ideas or address some of these concerns? Yeah, so I, there's definitely space to prune and adjust. I mean, I think the system is really quite broken in a variety of ways. We focus primarily on the kind of harms to democracy, but I think it's important here to clarify two things that. One, those harms to democracy, I think, also lead to bad policy, right? Policy that's not necessarily in the interests of the general public, but also leads to the potential for abuse. And secondly, that, you know, if you really do want, I mean, I really do think a democracy has the right and the obligation to be able to keep some information secret. But if you try to keep so much information secret, uh, it makes it much harder to protect that much smaller class of genuinely secret information. Um, you know, leaks are much more likely. And so this is, you know, in some sense, I used to say that it was just by luck that, you know, Chelsea Manning exfiltrated huge amounts of information, not for any nefarious purpose to help a rival or to sell for cash, but because she had an understanding of what was in the public interest. And it would have been just as easy for Manning to exfiltrate that information for much more frivolous or malevolent reasons. You know, I think that the, the, the allegations about Jack Teixeira sort of fill that role now as well. I mean, this is a sign of if you believe in keeping secrets, the current system doesn't actually do that job very well while also producing a lot of harms to democracy. So my sense is that both civil libertarians and people concerned about national security should want to reform the system, which also is incredibly expensive. I mean, it costs at least $18 billion a year to maintain the government's secrets. In that context, there's a lot of opportunity for incremental reform that would sort of pare back some parts of this. So you could imagine uh, reforming the Espionage Act to explicitly exempt journalists, which would be good. You could imagine building in a public interest defense, which would be good. I think that there's a need to put the classification system on a statutory basis and build in some kind of balancing act at the moment of classification to try to reduce the amount of overclassification in the system. Uh, And any or all of those incremental reforms would be beneficial. The reason I think that a more holistic reform is needed is in fact in part because of, to continue the organic metaphors, that, you know, the way that the system has evolved is not really the kind of ideal type of the common law where you're, you're trimming and what survives and grows and flourishes, you end up with the kind of ideal or the best system. What has developed over the course of the 20th century is actually really a, an evolution of the law under a sequence of panics. Uh, you know, moments of real concern that there's a kind of, you know, during the Cold War spy scare or during the Japanese spy scare of the early 20th century or during the war on terror when the the Bush-Cheney administration had really aggressive ideas about unilateral presidential authority in a context where people were very worried and afraid and and scared in the the wake of 9-11. And those moments have all pushed in one direction. So the evolution has all happened on the side of kind of adaptation to expand the powers of secrecy. The pushback as it's come has tended to be defensive, to try to hold some areas of that system at bay and to not allow growth into some domains like the liberties of the press. There has never really been a serious effort to kind of weed or prune in the interests of public understanding of foreign relations and national security, because the arguments that have been made on behalf of the security side of the equation have been given incredible deference. And that's been not a sort of judicial balancing process. It's really been a political act of deference. So one of the surprising things about the current system is it's really never been tested in court. You know, there's no Supreme Court jurisprudence on the constitutionality of the classification system, for instance, that Truman just sort of took unilaterally in 1951. There's never been a Supreme Court case on the constitutionality of an Espionage Act prosecution for leaking uh, government information. 
what's really happened is a kind of political stasis that's uh, allowed the growth of these types of government activity that have become naturalized. And I think what's needed is actually to think more clearly about the, the costs and benefits of these systems and to build in balancing acts uh, between secrecy and transparency, between security and liberty uh, in a more foundational sense. And my concern is that if you just do reform in one part of the system without taking on the underlying presumptions, it'll only ever be sort of ineffective that there will be a kind of workaround developed by people who continue to argue that there's a need for secrecy, that secrecy is crucial to the security of the nation. And those arguments have got so much legitimacy, so much more legitimacy, I think, than they deserve, that unless you have a kind of real reckoning with them, uh, the system will continue to kind of evolve in the, in the course, in the same way that it has over the course of the 20th century. Well, there's much more to discuss there, but unfortunately, we are out of time today. Sam Lebovic, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check out Lawfare's other podcasts, including Rational Security, a casual, lighthearted chat about national security news that I co-host each week with my colleagues, Quinta Jurassic and Alan Rosenstein. In addition, be sure to visit lawfaremedia.org for extensive written coverage of national security law and policy issues, and consider becoming a material supporter of Lawfare to gain access to an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare podcasts, among other perks. For more information, visit lawfaremedia.org support. This podcast was edited by Jen Pachahal and produced by Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.